I'm going to just give a very brief announcement and then we'll go right into invitation. Uh, we received, to my mind, this good news uh, and that is the ceremony or whatever we want to call it this afternoon will not take an hour. It will take only a half an hour. So we'll normally be coming over here at 5.30 instead of 5 o'clock. We will have quite immediately, we'll have our meditation, the comments, and comments about integration, and then we'll come over at 5.30 and do whatever they want to do. Let your awareness fill the entire space of the body. Settle your body in its natural state, relaxed and still condition. has gone by so it no longer exists. And the future is not yet come. It too does not exist. If your awareness comes to rest, quality of being exists. What is real? That is the present moment. Allowing your awareness to rest there in stillness. spaciousness of your own mind allow your eyes to be open, engage, rest in open space and time. And bring the full force of your attention into this vast and open space of the mind. Settle the mind.
this optimism and preference. Thank you for the appearances of anyone who comes to mind. Good evening, we're here. People from the past, people you anticipate seeing soon. Whatever appearances arise of the center being, the appearances are just that, just appearances arising when you're suffering. When the appearance occurs, Use this appearance as a portal, an opening, a window to enter the person. Let your attention rest there, focusing upon this person. She breathed in. Powerful you and may you like to stop. You free of suffering, causeless suffering. Spirit moves you intuitively, naturally. Lingering in one individual or a cluster of individuals for as long as you like until someone else comes to mind. To the best of your ability, see that you extend the spirit of caring, the grace of loving kindness and compassion equally to each one. Breathing in.
going beyond the exponential. It's a relation. If the individual is applied, has the degree of science. Instead of how much is real. How much are you able to assist them? Why couldn't all such a thing find happiness in the process of happiness? May they find happiness in this process. Responsibility. If you don't understand, however long it may take, you breathe in and breathe out. You will. The last, the aspiration, and the result. And if I lead you away from all suffering, One individual after another arises in your mind, comes to mind. 
promise, if you will, which resulted. And I did. Gives you the freedom to go on but God. Consider how that is we have to do also. You are not free yourself if you're not fully awakened. But for your own full potential, how it can possibly be others who actually should not feel that yourself.
by letting your imagination play. Imagine the foolish. Imagine what could have done. Your own pull away. And as one would fully away, you then be allowed. Let your awareness rest now. We roll up here with an object. Rest in this open natural purity. And we will remain for a little while after the shine sun. Very, very readable, very clear. 
for interventional consumption, and certainly, certainly trying to be able to have to some extent an objective energy, but also looking at both on the state of generation, and this will all mentioned in my last comment as well. I don't remember the title, but it could be state of generation. Uh, but if you check Amazon.com under Yahoo Limited, I think you found to be there. So that's that. I wanted to give you just a footnote um, and an invitation, footnote to the to the talks that I gave the last two days. Uh, this is kind of maybe I should say explicitly what the whole point of that was. Right? I mean, number one, I was responding to a question, and also to a whole array of questions that weren't asked, but that were correlated to the questions that were asked. But what's kind of the whole point? And now I, I think I can sum that up since I've spoken for two days. Now it's sort of a bullseye. And that is in this interval from 1687, when Newton came out with this, this monumental work, the Principia Mathematica, the Principia Mathematica, 1687. From then, for exactly 200 years, 1887, this whole movement of, of classical physics, classical mechanics from Newton, was just a series of unprecedented, mind-boggling triumphs. It's just the more they investigated, the better it looked. And it just had so many crash propositions that shed light on so many things that seem to be so different, like apples walking in a straight line and the moon going around the, around the Earth. And in fact, the same laws govern both. Again, it turns silly to say laws govern, because that's not really what happens at all. But these are the regularities. And so 200 years, I mean, that's not much longer than the whole history of the United States since its Declaration of Independence. I mean, that's a long time. Generations and generations of triumphant, 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 and they're triumphing like nothing else was triumphant. There was no other branch of knowledge that was so successful, so very realistically understandable. We get an enormous amount of confidence from that. And you see how much they progressed from 1687 to 1887. Oh, it's monumental. Human beings have been around for somewhere between 100 to 200,000 years, and what they did, what they did in two centuries. So when you see that kind of success, it's completely understandable that you think, look, look at the economy. Galileo, Newton, that was 70 years, 80 years, and then 200 years of just all success, just straight and just consensual knowledge. These are not opinions. This is knowledge we're building on. And so naturally, naturally, when James Cook Maxwell in 1874 came out with his marvelous theories, and again, they were appreciated very quickly by the scientific community, his four equations for electromagnetism, it was assumed, of course, it has to fit into the framework. There must be a mechanical explanation for this, too, because there's been a mechanical explanation for everything for 200 years, and it's always been true. And so, I think we want to be, I want to be very sympathetic to that. And even though that interval from 1787 to 1874 to 1887, when the Michelson Morley, I don't know if I said Michelson Morley, great experiment to show there was no ether, from that interval, naturally, reasonably, virtually all of the physicists assume there has to be a luminiferous ether. There has to be something pervading all of space that ripples when light as a wave of the field moves through it. They've got it. Because look, we have 200 years where the mechanical explanations work for everything. It's got to work for this. And so that's why they've always told him. He was no fool. When I quoted him, it was not for ridicule then. It was to show, oh, here's a brilliant man. He must have really, have really good reasons for having that degree of confidence. And virtually no doubt among people who are well-informed and intelligent. There's got to be some medium that pervades all of space that is the medium for the ripples, wave patterns of light. And then it turns out to be electromagnetism even though there was no evidence. There was no evidence whatsoever. But it's success, success, success. 1887, Michael's and Morley experiment, 1905, relatively short period, during which, again, pretty much everyone assumed there was ether. It had to be, even though there's no evidence. And now there's no evidence, but still we just kept on believing it. People like J.J. Thompson, Nobel laureate. And that was 1906. That was after. Einstein came out with the special relativity theory, which changed everything. And what it changed was this, that all of the truths of Newtonian physics were still there. All the elegant mathematics, all the benefits were still there. All the empirical science was there. They were still there. We didn't damage them at all. What changed? Fundamental assumptions about nature reality. 
the underlying assumption, absolute state, absolute time, that matter, the quantity of matter or mass is intrinsic and inherent to whatever has it, energy and intrinsic is absolutely infinite in context. These were the underlying assumptions. And this young Einstein blew them all away. They were always wrong. They had never been right. For 200 years, all of the physicists had believed something that was false. And Einstein showed it in 1905. They had always been fundamentally wrong. They were fundamentally wrong about the whole of reality. But it manifests only when you have bodies of matter moving near the speed of light. And then it becomes obvious. But when you're moving slowly, then the fact that you're holding those assumptions doesn't matter because it doesn't have any real empirical effects that matter. But as soon as you start moving forward in called relativistic velocity, then it does matter. Everything changes. So you're fundamentally wrong altogether, period. And you're manifestly, evidently wrong when you start moving near the speed of light. Then it's clear the empirical evidence, Newton was wrong, Einstein was right, and the evidence there is incontrovertible. So one sees here, right? That you're fundamentally wrong all along. For 200 years they were wrong. They were as wrong as the colony was wrong. And for 1,400 years, wrong that Earth was in the center and the sun's out there, as opposed to vice versa, the sun's in the center. But it didn't matter. It didn't matter. So when we're just trying to navigate around the globe, it doesn't matter. We try to fly to the moon, navigate to the planet, it's a very big problem if you still think the Earth is in the center. So these two things, you're fundamentally wrong, but it kind of doesn't matter. But you're still fundamentally wrong. But up here, you're fundamentally wrong and you're practically wrong too. But you won't know that until you travel about the speed. I didn't mention, so I'll mention very shortly now, quantum mechanics, the same thing. There was another problem even with Einstein's great breakthrough that was called black body radiation. And that was, it didn't make any sense, not in terms of Newton, and it did not make any sense in terms of Maxwell, even Maxwell's equations. This was anomaly. It, was, it shouldn't be this, and I won't explain it. It was called the override of catastrophe. It was called the black body radiation. But it was an effect that shouldn't be there, as long as you're assuming that those little, that that matter energy is really there, absolutely, uh, and the waves were absolute waves and so forth. And it was Max Planck in the year 1900, exactly on the spot, came up with the notion of quanta that everything, even energy, is not just a plenum, not just a field or a wave, but it comes down to the quantum little corpuscles of energy, matter as well. And that was the start of quantum mechanics. And that's called the black body equation. So they were fundamentally wrong about two things, absolute space, time, matter, energy, and they were also fundamentally wrong about the absolute, local, intrinsic, inherent, objective existence of elementary particles. And so people who got this, people like Werner Heisenberg, they said, the very foundations are, are shifting in particles. This is a fundamental shift in the way we're viewing all of reality. It's not just a little thing in a quantum experiment. This changes everything. The nature of reality we can no longer view in the same way. And this is in addition to special relativity. But somehow, there, there are these probability waves. They are virtual. They are, they are functions. They're probabilities until you, until you make a measure this. And they weren't already absolutely there. It changes everything. But that great revolution of quantum mechanics is still open-ended. They don't know what it means, and that's why there's so many different people training. What is the role of the observer? They have no, physicists have no training in observing, knowing about the nature of the observer. That's what psychology would do, but they're still stuck in 19th century physics. As if all of relativity during quantum mechanics is irrelevant. And why? Because people don't move around near the speed of light. And people are big chunky things and not little elementary particles. So almost everyone in psychology and neuroscience assumes that the great revolutions to relativity during quantum mechanics in the 20th century are irrelevant to the study of the brain and the mind. Why? Because we don't move that fast and we're not that tiny. But what they don't get, it hasn't sunk in, is those two revolutions changed everything. And we were always wrong. Fundamentally. Not just when you're traveling quickly or you're doing tiny things. They're fundamentally wrong, and it's only manifest when you're studying those little tiny things or very fast moving things. So there's a revolution there that's not yet complete, and that is the synthesis of relativity theory and quantum mechanics and the full implications of quantum mechanics 
how do we interpret it, what does it mean, and what is the role of the observer? Those are unsolved questions. And for that, I would say, and this is not a terribly wild speculation, you've got to understand the nature of the observer, and you can't do that unless you understand the nature of consciousness. So now in the parallel, so that's all physics, but now let's come back to what we're here for. I'm just studying physics so we can talk about physics. And that is we're living with this very exciting, very troubling point in history, human history, where now for 400 years, twice the period from Newton to Michael Morley, the great triumph from mechanistic materialistic understanding of the whole physical universe, twice as long as that. Galileo, 1610, until now, okay, 400 years, give or take a few months. 400 years, but similarly, 400 years of triumph upon triumph upon triumph, not only in physics, but Darwin's theory of evolution, and genetics, and one field after another, modern medicine, how many triumphs? And it's all, these triumphs for 400 years are all focusing, really, all the triumphs, are focusing on the physical, the objective, and the quantifiable, including questionnaires. Ask about your subjective, subjective experience. Good, what did it come out to? Question is, it's physical, it's subjective, and it's quantifiable. And that's what makes its way into the data analysis, not your subjective experience. The reports in the physical, objective, and quantifiable, right? And so 400 years of triumph, no wonder the scientific community, in particular the mind scientists, are assuming, look, we succeeded for four years, and we're going to continue succeeding. Status quo, and that is everything boils down to the physical, the quantifiable, and the objective, and that includes the mind. God, look, look, we have 400 years of triumph. Why should we go out on a limb and assume that there's something outside of that when 400 years of success speaks for itself? So what I'm really getting at, and I will go to the essence of it, is what we're speaking of in the mind sciences, which are all about 135 years old. The mind sciences is these are non, this whole domain, mind sciences, psychology, public neuroscience, it's non-relativistic mind science. Non-relativistic mind science. It's what the universe looks like if you're viewing it from the perspective of coarse mind. That's it, coarse mind. The mind is covered in thoughts. And why shouldn't you? All the scientists, psychologists, physicists, and so forth, you think their minds might be cluttered with an enormous amount of rumination and dualistic thinking and ADHD? And sure, why not? They have had no training to counteract any of these dimensional balances, not even the psychologists, let alone the physicists and neuroscientists. And so just assume, why not, that their minds are totally locked into that bandwidth. Of course, dualistic mind, which from a Buddhist perspective is just fundamentally delusional. So all of the research is being done from a baseline of delusion, of non-lucidity, exactly like what non-lucidity means. So what does the universe look like? What's the whole entire universe look like if you're viewing it, number one, only looking outwards? What scientists do, they're really good at it. And you're only looking, therefore, at the physical, quantifiable, and the objective. What does it look like? The modern scientific world, is that right? That's exactly what it came from, where introspection has essentially no rule at all. And all viewed from this coarse bandwidth of coarse mind, from that perspective. Relative to, now, as with Newton, relative to that, his worldview was impeccable, and the underlying assumptions were perfectly reasonable because there was no evidence to the contrary. Not until Michael Morley, and then special relativity, and then all the empirical data showing, oh, this is the Hadron Super Collider, and now they're using special relativity. Everything they're doing wouldn't make any sense without, without Einstein's special relativity theory. And so it's perfectly reasonable, the materialistic view of the mind. It's intelligent, it's reasonable, it's empirically based, and as far as they're concerned, there is no contrary evidence because they're looking to the coarse mind, subjective, physically quantifiable. It's perfectly rational. Just as Newton was perfectly rational in assuming absolute space, time, matter, and energy. But now, what happens when you start going into relativistic, relativistic speeds or velocity? Everything changes, and you find, oh, the physics themselves are different. The underlying assumptions are fundamentally wrong. They always have been. And now you have to look at the universe in an entirely different way. What does the universe look like if you're attending to it from the perspective of the substrate mind? What does it look like if you access the formula by way of samadhi? What does it look like if you access the formless realm by way of veritas samadhi? Access the nimittas 
within the forum group. Remember, I've even started to, to work with them in an engineering, never an engineering task of working with the managers in the forum now and seeing how they influence their desires. What does the universe look like if you're now working in another, a higher frequency? What does it look like? Well, materialism and the whole notion of the mind just being a function, a function of the brain looks like one silly joke. It looks just silly. Just like, why did you get that wrong? If you got it in your water, you'd probably swim around it being white. If you went as long as you possibly can get. But it wasn't stupid. It made perfect sense that it is swimming. But relativistically, now, from the perspective of a shamatama, samadhi mind, a dhyana mind, you cannot possibly take that seriously. You're seeing it relative to a samadhi perspective. What about the other fusion of shamatama and pasha? You're, you're gaining direct insight, not the theoretical speculation of quantum cosmology, but direct insight into the lack of inherent nature of all phenomena and how the phenomena you're attending to are actually shifting. If you hint at this, I will suggest this. Here's my hypothesis. The miners and mortar experiments killed the mechanistic view of the universe. It killed it. That's all encompassing and absolutely fundamentally true. It killed it. It's never been resurrected. Black body radiation killed the notion that the Killed the notion of the physics before quantum effect. It killed it. It never, never be resurrected. The placebo effect. The placebo effect is black body radiation. But the classical non-relativistic view of the mind. That's my hypothesis. It shouldn't be there. It shouldn't be possible. There's no way it should be possible. Everything taking place, if the mechanistic view of the body mind is true. Every mental activity, everything taking place in the body and the mind, should all be governed totally by the law of physics, chemistry, and gravity. There are no spirits, there are no ghosts, there's no gods, there's no angels, the devil is all bottomed. And here comes along the little fairies of thinking if I take this sugar tablet, my warts are going to go away. Except it's not a sugar tablet, it's a super wart medicine. It happens to be sugar tablets. Going from that belief, this will help, and lo and behold, your worst decision, and so many other areas. Again, according to a, an expert head of, of research and development at one of the major pharmaceutical companies in the whole world, I know him personally, former head, he said one half the benefit you get from all pharmaceutical drugs across the board is placebo. You're believing it could be helpful. So it's not just, I mean, the absurd blow ridiculous responses. Oh yeah, this helps to relieve tension by believing it. I'll give me a break. That's, a, that's just a throw. There's, much, there's something much deeper. By believing this will help you. Very specifically. Lo and behold, in many, many cases, it's a how you move from a belief, an uninformed belief, knowing nothing about physiology at all, and just believing this will help. And lo and behold, it brings about the benefit. You believe it will or accentuate the benefits of the medicine, which of course is designed to do that chemically according to the laws of physics and chemistry, biology. This shouldn't be possible. And the scientists are dodging the bullet on this one at every point. They refuse to answer the question, or they say, or they just talk about neural calls. In other words, they throw fancy around. And they're not because they're stupid or the malevolent. They just, when you can't grapple with something at all, you overweight it. And they have no idea how to grapple with it. I have spoken, I have corresponded with some of the world experts and say, we don't know, so we don't ask that question. How do you go from that realm of believing this will happen? And it actually triggered exactly those neural mechanisms, which then triggered the hormone system and so forth and so on to bring about the expected change. How does that happen? They don't have a clue because it doesn't fit. It shouldn't be there. It's the black body radiation, it's the ultraviolet catastrophe, it's the placebo catastrophe. And they're dodging the bullet. It shows that the mechanistic view of my body is completely fundamentally, has always been irrelevantly false. And that's perfectly obvious from the substrate consciousness perspective, from the form of the samadhi, it's like a no-brainer. I mean, literally, it's a no-brainer. What's the placebo? Keep your eye on the placebo effect. And the nocebo effect. The nocebo effect. And that is, you have guessed the symptoms, 
and you're checking out on the internet, oh, what, you know, what is your prior self-diagnosed? You see a certain disease corresponds, and you start believing you have it, and lo and behold, you get more symptoms of the disease you believe you have, from a nocebo aroma, right? In other words, the power of conceptual resignation, the power of belief, is like karma. It goes positive and negative equally. You can make yourself sick by believing you have something, and lo and behold, you start getting the symptoms. But you believe, oh, I think I have TB, oh, oh, oh. And then lo and behold, you start triggering TB-like symptoms. It doesn't mean that you get TB, it does mean you're very healthy. Get some of the symptoms on So, we are poised for relativistic mind science. We have classical mind science, very much like classical physics, locked into a mechanistic 19th century worldview, which completely ignores all of modern physics, 20th century physical Hardly any psychologist or neuroscientist has any training in that. And if they do, they don't take it seriously or as being relevant to their own discipline. Because again, brains don't move that fast, and you don't have to work with the elementary particles when you study the brain, when you have cells, the big pushing things. So this is it. This is what the thrill is. A true first revolution in mind science that moves from the classical, the absolute mechanistic, to the relativist. Seeing that the whole world shifts and the whole understanding of the mind, its relations with the whole of nature, moves from coarse mind, dualistic mind, locked into an antiquated and utterly false, fundamentally false view of reality as being all wedged down to absolute natural and so forth. Which all, 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 the, all the mind scientists believe in. But they don't really take 20th century physics seriously, they don't see it as relevant. Moving beyond that to the relativistic views, the relative views of seeing reality from the perspective of subtle, subtle mind, substrate mind. From a deeper dimension, union is not a question. And now how about the deepest? What does reality look like when you look from the perspective of reality? Multiple bands. Revolution of concept. But we've not even begun, but I think we're getting close. But we have to get off our throne of complacency thinking 400 years of success means just doing the same thing more. Which is very good for what it does, but we've learned nothing in 135 years about the nature of consciousness. In terms of the core issue, what is its nature, how does it interface with the brain, what are its necessary efficient causes, when does it emerge in the womb, when does it vanish, what happens to it at death, all of the fundamental questions. Can you even define it? No. Can you measure it? No. I mean, that's really called no progress. You can't measure, you can't define, you don't know what causes, you don't know what it does, you don't know where it occurs, and you don't know what vanishes. I would say that's pretty much 100% ignorance. And that's where we started 135 years ago, and that's where we are now. And they still tell me, just give us more money to this old mechanistic worldview. The mechanistic view of the, the mind, consciousness, nothing more than a function of the brain. So I'll end on this note. Einstein couple decades after special relativity theory was formulated, he said, I put him almost debating, I think I put it yesterday. He said, all assumptions about the ether led nowhere. There was never any evidence for it, any more than there's any evidence at all that consciousness is simply a equivalent tool or a number of properties of the brain. There's no evidence at all. Just correlation. That doesn't mean but one emerges from the other. That's just not a logical conclusion. It's one possibility. If there's no evidence for that versus the other hypothesis, all assumptions about the ether led nowhere. And yet everybody believed it until the special relativity. And I will say similarly, all assumptions that the mind is simply a function of the brain, emergent properties are equivalent to it, have led nowhere. They are leading nowhere. They will never lead anywhere. There's no evidence for it. And it's a great big assumption that's like a boulder in the middle of the road. And it's blocking you from getting anywhere in terms of really understanding the nature of consciousness. How should we proceed? Good old fashioned. We want to understand something, observe it with all the sophistication, the rigor, clarity we possibly can. It goes for atoms, it goes for galaxies, and it goes for the mind. Observe it. And that's the one thing that mind scientists are not doing. It's kind of like an obvious one. Why do you be scientists with respect to the mind? like you are for everything else. Don't just study the correlate, study the phenomenon. For this, you might want to train your attention. Because otherwise, you've got a wobbly telescope. I like to think of it. 
Galileo's telescope mounted on the back of a camel in a dust truck. <laughs> what chance does he have of discovering anything, right? And I think now you all know exactly what I'm talking about. It's the mind you've been reading over the last 17 weeks. Telescope mounted on the back of a camel in a dust truck. Sounds familiar? And so here we are, taking you to get her off the camel, on the firm ground, let the sky clear, and be able to actually see something that's better. So that's that. So you can see that I think what we're doing here is more than just getting a bit more relaxed and calm and having happier life. We're good. What's the beginning of the And of course, that's nothing new with me at all. It's a transmitter. You know where the source is from. None of the sources were, oh, here's Nagarjuna, and here's Sundarabha, and here's Alan Wallace. That was never one of my sources. You might have gotten random notes according to writing down walls, such and such. That never came up. For very good reasons. No, it was written that. So that's that. That's why I went on for the two days. Now, um, some people have found the afternoon talks pretty much over the last two weeks after I stopped giving the guided meditation. Front row reads the afternoon talks. Uh, I think some of you found those helpful. And one person suggested to me yesterday that it might be helpful to have them transcribed after the talk. And so I'm speaking to people on podcasts. Uh, if somebody, if you appreciate it, what they can offer here, and perhaps you can or cannot make any financial contribution to the Santa Barbara Institute or to our aspiring yogis, whether or not you can, if you'd like to help out, if you'd like to support this type of endeavor, this type of exploration, anyone listening to the podcast would like to transcribe one or more of the lectures over the last basically two weeks or so. I'm glad you to do so. You're very welcome. Simply please write to Kimberly. I'll try to organize that so we don't have two people transcribing the same lecture. And likewise, anybody here who would like to write to me. If you find any of the lectures especially helpful and would like to spend some time, it's kind of grunt work, but actually you learn it a lot better when you transcribe each other. You're very close to it. Uh, then that might be helpful. Could be helpful to have a whole set of those transcripts and then see how they could be most, most benefit. So that's an invitation. That finishes that. So we have now five minutes for me to address some rather large issues. Which I'm not sure about more time, but I think I don't need a whole lot of time. And that is some kind of some uh, how do you say fundamental guidelines about integration. Integration. And that is all of us in a very short term. We're going to be venturing out into the world. And the list can go from here, and five minutes later, we're going to walk from the tree. There's going to be some transition. And so I'll come back to a theme that's very, very core. I think of myself as on, on occasion as being a Dharma nutritionist, trying to encourage people to have a balanced diet. And so as you anticipate trying to integrate this into whatever life you're anticipating going back to, or actually not going back to any life, because we're going to a new life. I mean, we'll have, as they say, history never repeats, but it sometimes rhymes. So you'll be going back to to people in situation and context that there's some similarity to what you left eight weeks ago. But they won't be the same, that's for sure. And you won't be the same. But it's just not the guy going back to, because we never go back. Time is one of those errors that only moves forward. But obviously there'll be similarities. So to anticipate how might we be able to continue to provide as much benefit as possible, at balance time. And so shamatha is a basic enzyme. Shamatha is basically to get you sane, to bring out equality, relaxation, sensitive stillness, and vigilance, so that whatever comes up, you have a mind that you actually can process, that you can practice, and you can bring to life your practices. And so there's something <coughs> I would suggest at least one dose of shamatha every single day. Okay? Oh, so that should be one hour. Shamatha, whatever source. And could be from other teachers. I have no, no franchise, no monopoly on shamatha. But something that makes your mind serviceable is what your shamatha is all about. It makes your mind serviceable. Your body mind. Secondly, practices for the heart. Practices for the heart. And they can be horizontally, and that is as we attend to our fellow central beings whose existence we have no reason to doubt, then attending to others in meditation or in active inter interface with others. In the spirit of the four measurables, or four greatest friends during the weekly retreat, of kindness and so on, this is the cultivation of the heart. For those of you who have some degree of reverence, faith, so forth, of devotion, of thought, refuge, then cultivation of the heart by way of refuge, by way of 
the chitta, by the guru yoga, is really going to have a dimension of warmth, sweetness, and dimension of life. So whatever it is to you, it should not be formulaic or simply ritualistic. It's something that really extends <coughs> your life. And then find and I will make everything, everything something for the heart. And then finally, oh, every day, don't let a day slip by without cultivating an ongoing aspiration to come to know reality and to create a depth of clarity, richness and depth, passion. Cultivation of the passion and reading material that allows the deeper understanding. Contemplative reading, where you're reading very slowly and reading in meditation. Mahaput Buddha practice, Dzogchen practice, poor application of mindfulness practice, Vipassana practice, and something to continue the flow of a deepening and clarification of insight and understanding, both conceptual as well as experiential. So, those three basic pujas, Jananda, to make your mind serviceable, and cultivation of the heart, cultivation of the internet. So, it kind of corresponds to the three qualities of Buddha mind. Creative power, the energy of the Buddha mind, that's Shamanda. And then compassion, that's the core metrics on all of that. And then the wisdom. So, so cultivate in the beginning what will come to fruition at the end. And that's a balance there. So, however much, of course, you can practice, you can devote each day to formal practice, setting aside, carving off some time when you're not doing anything else. And it's just the practice, you focus single pointedly on bringing greater and greater, greater meaning. Your life, whatever way you find most fit. The more time you can spend with that, I think that you get a lot better. My confidence is you'll never regret it. You'll never look back and oh, I spent a whole week in the tree. What a waste of time. I wish I hadn't done that. And there I was cultivating loving kindness. Gosh, waste of time. And there, I don't think so. I don't think so. So that will be time well spent. So whether it's 20 minutes, or whether it's two hours, or whether it's eight hours in full retreat. The more time you can spend, I think that will be regret-free time to spend with that. But of course, we all, very much including myself, we all have uh, other obligations to manage our time. Wasting? You can't see through windows anymore. So it's not weird for me. Maybe waiting for some logical. Um, but then the other big theme there, and I'm speaking of a balanced diet, is Attending all the things you need to do. For me, it's email, it's translating, it's teaching, it's working on various projects simultaneously, it's all that kind of stuff, just as much as possible, whether it's for five seconds, whether it's one minute, two minutes, 10, 20, 30 times a day. Seasoning the day with your dhamma. It could be awareness and awareness. It could be following five breaths in and out and back to the center. It could be cultivating loving kindness, but just those moments throughout the day at this at the red stoplight. When you're waiting, waiting at the, what's it called when the, uh, you know, getting getting out of the airport, be so happy that you're in the slowest line. So, <laughs> thank goodness they're not rushing you through. <laughs> so there you are, you know, savoring the moment. Here's time for practice. You're probably surrounded by sentient beings. Each one has a good nature, by the way. I don't say it's And so just seasoning the day, being in terms of how much we've managed, there's a statement from Atisha. See, then I come to ramble on a little bit. So the statement of Atisha, by his teacher in the seventh point mindfulness, when he dwells into it, and he's gone through the passion and gone through the things, but the chitta and so forth. And one would expect there to be some pretty significant transformations when you're really devoting yourself to such very powerful, deep practices. But he says, as you're really unfolding, as you're progressing, developing the practice, he says, Inwardly, there could be complete transformation, outwardly, remain the same. And of course, that is open to interpretation. If you tend to be a lustful, short tempered, impatient, greedy, and self centered, then you need to clean that mess up. <laughs> and so, in terms of behavior, especially in terms of kind of cooling it, that is, subduing, releasing old behavioral patterns that you know for yourself are not helpful to you or anybody else, being impatient is very easy. Being a bit thoughtless, being not really attentive to others' presence, to treat them as an idea, an idea relationship, that's really easy to do. Very easy, especially when we're impatient, especially when we get filled with our own desires. And we don't want other people just to fill my desires. And then 
shut up and just look at the diet. Please, you know, just, just do it. As if we're talking to a motorcycle. Just turn on, turn on. Okay, just turn on. Push button, turn on. Turn on, turn on. So there are behavioral patterns that we can very quickly create. But if we think especially as we're anticipating how to manifest in the world, how to somehow be present and active in the world, if we can recognize certain behavioral patterns, which is maybe checking to make sure they're not working. They said kind of backwards. Um, it's especially, I mean, a major thing that we can do is not do, not manifest, not behave in a way that it comes straight out of the natural person. And that's all good. It's all good. And so I think a lot of this, I think probably all of us have some, found some value in this retreat. And we're mindfully, aspirational, I wish other people could get benefit from such practices. And the way it strikes home most is that they see changes in you that they value. They say, oh, that's good. That's good. Eight weeks ago, you were like this, and now you're like this. And it can be especially by absence. It doesn't have to be that we're walking around and just giving everybody hugs and maybe we're going happy and maybe she's very happy and maybe she's just happy and they might get a little bit of a good time. We're really But it's more just an attenuation of a blinker tendency. No downside to that. No downside to that. But what teacher was really getting at, Barbara, what's the super? <laughs> Thank you for checking. Um, Sonia? Sonia? Is my name right? Uh-huh. But she's here now, so you said that was come up. Okay, that was good. Thank you for checking. Well, I have been able to sit in. Oh, you have? Okay, good. But the hay is maybe. I mean, you really definitely, as you all know, but they might know, you really should not expect them to just stop talking. (laughs) (laughs) So, in terms of the release of the negative side, I think we can be unabashed about being wrong. And in terms of really manifesting something that is fresh and unprecedented, uh, just as strong as the only thing really to just watch out for, the teacher was basically warning us against, is coming out of the tree. And even seeing a little simmering, a little background noise of (laughs) 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 trying to make an impression. That's an exaggeration, I grant. But trying to to show how people how holy we are, how mindful we are. Don't try to make an impression. That's what he's really saying. Don't try to make an impression. It looks really weird. <laughs> so there we are. There's unprecedented arising. So are there any little lingering things, especially about the integration, that come up that I've not addressed that we for which you would like to have clarification or any insights? Maybe you have some insights of ways you can already insist on integrating that has now we're clearly attempt looking ahead. Any comments or questions just for the remaining few minutes? And conflict. Yes, Sylvia. Yes. Thank you. Um, today, I feel a very busy day because I went out to buy some things and uh, then we go to the uh, school and have this wonderful tour there. But uh, I realize that it's so difficult, you know, because in one part of the tour, I said, oh my God, I, I'm so tired. Why he's speaking that much? <laughs> and I thinking, and you said in the morning that, uh, well, do... The, the practice when we are outside. And I begin to, be the, to do this, and it's, it's okay. It, uh, it works, you know? Yes, release it. And, well, I, I want to share this with you. And I hope it's helpful, helpful, because tomorrow or the day after, some of us we are going out, and I think it's going to be 
a little quite difficult to engage. It's a challenge, a challenge to engage our lives uh, again with the life outside. That's all. And I love you. <laughs> I love you. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> so, because you need to go down.